Welcome fans, teachers, and fans of teachers. Do you love a great story? I sure do. I've made it my life's work to tell stories that help people to learn and laugh. I'm your host, Kristen Murphy, a small town veteran teacher who loves to share stories with children and adults that inspire, teach, entertain, and just plain make us all better people. I'm so happy you're pairing up with me today on Think, Pair, Teacher, Share. Let the stories begin. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me today for my third episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share. A week or two ago, a colleague whom I respect greatly was standing next to me as we perused the goodie day offerings in the teacher's room. She told me that she was eagerly awaiting the next episode of my podcast. Now, if that didn't light a fire under me to get the next episode finished and out, I don't know what would. I continue to be so surprised and humbled by how much feedback I've received. So thank you, everyone. If you're so moved by today's episode, please consider sharing it on to other teachers and to fans of teachers. I'm so happy that you're along for the ride today. Today, I'm excited to share some stories and a book or two with you, all falling under the umbrella of unanticipated teaching surprises, with a little spoonful of myth-busting heaped on the top for good measure. These surprises are related to my greater theme this fall and winter of timing as a key part of effective teaching. What, you're likely saying? So let me explain. As I've mentioned ad nauseum before, I do love a good research study because, well, who doesn't? And if I can have a whole book of them, so much the better. I know, I know, I'm repeating myself, so get on with it, Murphy. Let me start by sharing a story from my pandemic virtual teaching during the 2020-2021 school year, a year when I taught 100% of my 170 school days without shoes. But I digress. Here's the story. For you three-episode listeners, you know that I was the virtual teacher for all of our district's second graders whose families had opted to have their seven-year-olds attend school remotely via Zoom. One morning, my class and I were solving a math puzzle. I had challenged students to use the digits one to nine to form two digit numbers that when one was subtracted from the other made the smallest difference, really as a way to practice subtracting along an open number line and to reason logically. Students worked independently or in a small group with me to choose and subtract numbers, rinse and repeat, and to try to beat their record hopefully finding smaller and smaller differences. Then we reconvened as a whole class and students shared their screens one at a time to show their thinking. We heard from several students, each with a difference smaller than the one before. We were down to a difference of two and there were unmuted murmurs that that was as low as we could go. One student patiently raised her hand. I got negative 11, she said. Eyebrows raised. I invited her to share her screen and explain. Sure enough, the two of us together modeled for the class neat rainbows along the number line to help explain her thinking. They were jumping to the left of zero. We acquainted ourselves with the I owe you money side of the number line, which opened up a whole new view of math for my adorable seven-year-olds. There were a number of teaching surprises that I got to unwrap that day. 
one surprise was the happy knowledge that at least one of my second graders had some schema about negative numbers. I am a long-time third grade teacher, and so it isn't that unusual to hear students professing happily that they know about minus 100 or some form of negative numbers. It was a nice surprise for me to realize that this second grade student also was aware. A second teaching surprise is one that I always delight in finding, and it is a bonus if my class also discovers it. The student who spoke up that day was a student who had struggled with math and language lessons. She had likely struggled before our pandemic year as well, and I guessed that at least some students in our class might have been aware that some learning had been hard for her. I'm a teacher who loves this kind of cognitive dissonance in the classroom. At the time of this happy discovery, I remember looking at the other faces in their rectangles, hoping to see students perking up and paying close attention to something which may have surprised them. I confess that while I love teaching every single student, I especially love teaching students whom I I might call the underdogs. These students have some academic struggles that might be out of their direct control, but as teachers, we all know that all students have many different gifts to offer in the classroom, and they unwrap them at different times in their development. I love it when a child unwraps a gift that was previously hidden from sight, and that perhaps most people didn't notice. And this was just such a gift. So I gave this student a lot of positive, specific public praise, which recognized her tenacity to keep thinking about how she could get a smaller and smaller difference, and how her efforts were fruitful, as recommended by Carol Dweck in her article called The Perils and Promises of Praise, in a 2007 issue of Educational Leadership. I also spent some time helping the rest of the class to develop a little schema about the negative end of the number line to help them when they saw this skill in their future lessons, whenever that might be for them. I wasn't concerned that negative numbers were not part of our second grade curriculum, and I wasn't concerned that the students might not fully grasp this somewhat more abstract lesson. In fact, I told them that I wasn't worried if they didn't completely understand, because this was like an appetizer for their brain that would help them when their main course of negative numbers came along. One reason that I was not so concerned that they wouldn't master exactly what I was offering up was rooted in a book which I had read several years ago called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning by Peter Brown, Henry Rudiger, and Mark McDaniel. I had picked up this book by chance, since teachers absolutely everywhere are always looking for ways to make concepts stick for our students, and this title was fetching. What I hadn't realized until I began reading the introduction and the book itself is that the book was written by two cognitive scientists and one storyteller. Rudiger and McDaniel collaborated with Peter Brown, the storyteller, to elucidate the science of learning and memory to which they had dedicated their careers. They wanted the layperson to understand through stories. This book was perfect for me, clearly. As I read further into the book, I realized that the authors were writing this book in part to dispel myths that teachers for decades have accepted as truths. So a book with stories and the element of surprise, even better. You might be curious if you're a teacher or a fan of teachers about what teachers and learners have assumed wrongly is the way to make learning stick. And you may be curious about what these cognitive scientists had found was an effective way to grasp new ideas and concepts and hold on to them. Well, no need to wait until your copy of the book comes in the mail. 
I'll present some of the main ideas here, here now, hoping to whet your appetite. The first surprise is the author's thesis that the most effective learning strategies are not intuitive. Instead, they often feel more effortful and less effective at first. They don't feel like the traditional schooling that you and I likely had growing up. Heck, the effective strategies described in Make It Stick don't feel a lot like school, at least the way it's prescribed by many educational policymakers and the test-taking routines of today. So, have I piqued your interest? I sure hope so. Here are three big ideas from the book which have forever changed my own teaching practices. First, Rudiger, McDaniel, and Brown explain that it's actually spaced repetition of key ideas. In other words, a spread out study of a topic to which a learner returns periodically over time and repeats in different contexts that makes learning permanent. The author, authors even suggest that reading a text twice right away is inferior to reading the same piece once and then a second time a few days later. You've heard the term practice makes perfect, right? Well, just like my college marching band director, George N. Parks used to say from high atop the scaffolding during our daily marching band practices, practice doesn't make perfect, only perfect practice makes perfect. In this case, the cognitive scientists who wrote Make It Stick say that this perfect practice comes in smaller chunks, in many different places, or as part of different situations, and not necessarily every day. In fact, they assert also that it is actually beneficial to one's learning to space out the practice of new concepts and to even get a little rusty. Doesn't sound like traditional school, right? The second thesis, which the book explains, is that it is the interleaving of different but related concepts which cements learning and not the massed practice of just one concept over and over and over again. They found that this mixed practice of several different concepts makes for better learning than if one at a time is studied exclusively. So, for example, learning all one's addition concepts all at once and then finishing with addition and moving on to the subtraction unit is a recipe for not as much learning as if one taught addition and subtraction concepts together and showed students how one operation is the inverse of the other. Also, it's better for students to have to grapple with which operation is required for a given word problem rather than know that any word problem that they're going to find will just be solved with addition. One additional example, no pun intended, of the superiority of interleaved practice over massed practice for me as an educator was when many years ago, our district adopted a math curriculum which incorporated a part of the daily lesson time each day which required students to complete some pages, which asked them to review previous concepts and also provided a problem every so often which was really future learning. The authors of Make It Stick suggest that trying to solve a problem before being taught the solution actually makes for better learning, even if a learner makes many mistakes on the way to the solution. This seems counterintuitive especially when viewing the tidy lesson plans in many curriculums. There is another cognitive surprise. A struggle is sometimes a good thing for one's learning. When the district embarked on its annual testing at the end of the first year, after the curriculum's adoption, students' math scores rose significantly compared to previous years' testing. After reading this book, I realized why. Students had engaged in daily practice with those mixed-up kind of problems, and an occasional educational appetizer, which required them to apply effort in order for them to understand. And that example, 
leads me to a third postulate of the book. Learning sticks better and lasts longer when it is what the scientists refer to as effortful. It is likely what students around these parts here in New England would call wicked hard. The authors tell us that easy learning is gone quickly from us. Sorry, everyone. Hard is better. I remember that when I was a student in eighth grade, I went to my algebra teacher and I pleaded with him for a formula of some kind, which would help me to solve every algebraic word problem. Those pesky algebraic word problems at the time really confounded me. He looked at me with sympathy, perhaps mixed with some amusement. Kristen, he said, there really is no formula. You just have to read each problem and consider it separately. The young me was searching for an easy method, but my math teacher knew that easy was not effective, even if a formula had existed. In fact, I'm going to take a bird walk away from the Make It Stick book for a moment to share another study that I read, which really blew my mind and which relates to the idea that harder learning is better retained. You won't believe it. Princeton professor Daniel Oppenheimer and his two colleagues, Erica Vaughn and Connor Diemendioman, conducted a study in which students were given one of two passages about two separate fictional creatures. One of the readings was printed in 12-point, hard-to-read font in grayscale. The other was printed in 16-point, easy-to-read aerial font in clear black. After a short test on the characteristics of these fictional animals, the group that was found to have retained the most about their fictional animal was the group with the hard-to-read font. This is certainly a cognitive surprise. Oppenheimer was interviewed about this counterintuitive result after the study, and he posits that because students presented with this harder-to-read print were required to slow down in order to read it, and because this feeling of disfluency likely made them feel less confident about their understanding of the topic, they had to work harder to read and digest the facts. This extra effort actually made them retain the material better than their counterparts who sailed through their own reading. Just amazing. Now, I'm not suggesting to teachers that they should press the lightest setting on their copy machines before hitting print, nor am I suggesting that they find the most illegible font with which to print their syllabi. However, it is fascinating to realize that making learners have to slow down and check their understanding is better for their learning. Maybe that is why I remember like 90% of the course content from a college sociology course that I took, which was taught entirely from the chalkboard by a professor whose handwriting was almost illegible. I was so intent on reading and catching every word that I took the most thoughtful notes of my whole college career. Oh, and since we're talking about taking a little bird walk away from the book for a moment, I'll take one more step away to share another related study, which is a similar cognitive surprise, again from our psychology professor friend, Daniel Oppenheimer, and this time along with Pam A. Mueller. This study, which again feels counterintuitive, proves that a more difficult task often makes learning stick more. In a 2014 study, Oppenheimer and Mueller found that students who took notes by hand, rather than using a laptop computer, learned and retained the course information better than their laptop note-taking peers. Despite the laptop note-taker's ability to write more of the content of lectures relative to the handwriters, Oppenheimer and Mueller found that handwriting the notes forces the writer to think about the content, synthesize the ideas, 
and choose to write the most important ideas. In addition, students were forced to paraphrase and draw pictures or diagrams to help them note the content. In short, they had to do a lot more cognitive processing than their key-tapping laptop peers, and this made them superior to their peers when tested on the more abstract course material. Even when further studies explicitly asked laptop note-takers not to write what the professor said verbatim, but to paraphrase, the study's authors found that laptop note-takers could not resist writing exactly what had been said. Another related study found that even when both groups were allowed to review their notes later, the handwriting note-takers still outperformed the laptop note-takers. Harder work clearly makes for stronger retention of concepts. A big educational surprise is that we are the worst judges of whether we are learning something well. When we learn new concepts and meet a difficult challenge, we are more likely to choose a method to learn that feels easier, like rereading our notes before a test or lots of practice of one kind of word problem type. However, these easier strategies that make us feel like we're more familiar with the material are deceptively ineffective. They yield only temporary and fleeting gains. In contrast, the harder study skill of making questions from the concepts and then quizzing ourselves to make us answer these questions or using flashcards to recall concepts are superior methods. It is harder to study this way than rereading or repetition and requires us to express the concepts in our own words and connect concepts to what we already know. These are harder study strategies but they produce better results instead of merely making us feel more familiar with content that we actually haven't digested. The authors of Make It Stick assert that this quizzing method interrupts forgetting by periodically strengthening the neural pathways in the brain. I love that phrase, interrupts forgetting. Now, if I I could only interrupt forgetting where I put my pile of copied papers in my classroom. So, Now let me be like Peter Brown, the storyteller author of the book, and provide a few of the concrete examples that the scientists and storyteller authors of Make It Stick provide for their readers in the book in order to convince their audience that these three big ideas should turn education as we know it today on its head. My favorite story from the book involves baseball. In a study conducted at the California Polytechnic State University, the university baseball team was the subject of an experiment the team was split into two groups. Both groups practiced hitting 45 pitches. One group knew that they would get 15 fastballs, followed by 15 curveballs, and finally 15 change-ups. This was massed practice, the foreknowledge that they would get all one kind of ball and then switch to the next kind and then the next. The second group got 45 pitches and 15 of each kind of pitch, but they never knew which kind of ball was coming next and there was no pattern to the order in which the balls were pitched. After these two practice sessions per week for six weeks, both groups' hitting ability was assessed. The surprise was that the group with the three types of pitches interspersed at random outperformed the group which received one type of pitch repeated 15 times before moving to the next type of pitch, with 57% improvement compared with 25% improvement. Another surprise was that the group which performed better felt that they were less successful at learning and the group with the massed practice, which performed more poorly on the hitting assessment, felt like they were better at hitting after the practices. This perception was likely based on the difficulty that the players felt when they were getting the mystery pitches. So they felt that their gains were slow. 
However, their improvements were greater and longer lasting. This paradox is one that teachers should remember when planning their students' learning and one which they should explain to their students will be worth the difficulty. If you're not a teacher, you can use this information in your own life when learning a new skill. Why learn one skill at a time when you can mix up more than one skill and learn both better? Or perhaps you can learn the same topic, but in a few different ways. One way that non-teachers can put this knowledge to use is to consider how learning one topic in a few different contexts might help you learn that topic better. Let me give you an example. Our family is a musical one. I grew up learning to play the piano beginning at about five years old, and then learning to play the flute quite badly in the third grade, and then finally switching to the trumpet in fifth grade, which definitely stuck. I've also sung in some church choir or other for basically my whole life. My husband is also a musician, actually a musician by trade, so it was no surprise when our kids both wanted to learn instruments. Both of them decided that they wanted to play an instrument in kindergarten, and they were then wooed by a second instrument in third or fourth grade. While other families may have discouraged them from picking up a second instrument, my husband and I knew from our own experiences that playing two or more instruments would help them to be better musicians. The study of one would improve their musicality in the other. And indeed, that has been the case. It was only after reading Make It Stick, however, that I realized why the study of two different musical disciplines helped both kids to zoom ahead. This is why I love research. It explains so much of life. Remember how I said that I changed my teaching after reading this book? When I read Made it, Make It Stick the first time, I was teaching third grade. After I finished the book, I combined the multiplication and division units I was tasked with teaching into one interleaved unit, making sure to connect the two operations. This felt harder for students at first, but I found that it paid dividends when students were asked to demonstrate their understanding. I still finished the teaching in the same time, but my students had a good understanding of both operations and were practiced in determining which operation to use when presented with a word problem. It's also better, the authors say, to learn the same skill in many different ways. For example, they suggest learning about the volume of many different geometric solids rather than just learning about one type of solids formula and then the next and the next. These changes are easy for teachers to make, but the knowledge that these changes are crucial has not yet made it, made it from educational theory into classrooms. So that's our task for this year, teacher friends. The most optimistic part of Make It Stick is that learning is not determined from birth. We have agency when making new ideas and learning them, and how we learn changes our brains. This is a message that we can impart to our students if we're teachers, or which we can remind ourselves when we're doing the learning ourselves. If we fail, we're not stupid, but just in need of a more effective strategy. If learning feels terribly difficult, then we can be glad because we know it will stay with us when we finally learn the concept. In short, making mistakes, fixing them, and rehearsing different kinds of concepts makes learning stick. These mistakes and rehearsals are the staircase to more difficult learning. Now, if I had only known this when I was struggling to learn physics in high school, instead of wondering what ridiculous person would throw a bomb off of a crow's nest, I should have been staying with the calculations which would have solved the, those ridiculous word problems. Well, I guess the authors of Make It Stick would tell me it's not too late. Teachers who know about this research 
can help their students by challenging the outdated theories which have been part of educational cir circles for decades. We can challenge the intuitive yet wrong notions that have long been held as truths in education. We can help our students to have some patience when they learn and to help them develop Carol Dweck's growth mindset so they can persist when learning feels slow and difficult. After all, this kind of learning is the best because it stays with us. My college marching band professor was right. Only perfect practice makes perfect. Well, we've reached the part of each episode during which I offer you a book recommendation. As usual, this book isn't necessarily a teacher book. It isn't a set of lessons or a curriculum. Instead, anyone, teacher or not, can read this book to improve their work and their personal lives in some way. Today, I offer you a book with a surprise title. I guess we're all about surprises here in episode three. The title of the book is called Connected, How Your Friends, Friends, Friends Affect Everything You Feel, Think, and Do. In this book, written by Nicholas A. Christakis and James H. Fowler, you'll find answers about why people who we don't even know well, or perhaps we don't even know at all, affect our own life choices. The idea that the authors describe as schools of fish changing direction in unison might subconsciously affect us, well, that's a surprise in itself. How could that affect our students? Well, that's also surprising. I love this kind of book because it makes me examine what I thought was true. I also find the invisible ties that bind us together to be some delicious food for thought. I hope that when you read it, you agree that this book is a keeper. Well, I hope you enjoyed the third episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share today. Thanks for spending your time with me. I hope that you'll think about how challenging norms and even our own intuition can pay dividends, though it will feel hard while we're doing so. Remember to pair up with a colleague or friend and discuss the ideas you learned from the show, my book, book recommendation, and of course, share your own ideas about time with each other. Join me for the next episode of Teacher Share when I focus on another aspect of learning. This time, we'll examine what a tangled web we, we weave. Did I pique your interest? I hope so. We've all got some precious time on this planet. I wish you the best as you spend yours. And join me next time for another episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share.